Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> when you think of humanity, what comes to mind? Perhaps it is the great love stories or noble war stories, or perhaps it is the terror and the cruelty that mankind too often shows to each other. Or perhaps you think of flesh and blood and sinew, or the beauty of your first love, or the distinct smell of one that you cared deeply for, who is now gone to their rest. But have you ever thought of humanity as statues? Exactly. <laughs> as Westerners, this could be a rather foreign concept to us. But if we lived in the ancient Near East, this description might pique our interest. So let me explain a little bit. Perhaps you remember the fall of Saddam Hussein about 20 years ago now, which when I did the math, I was really surprised by. I still have a vivid image of the liberated Iraqis pulling down a statue of Saddam that was erected in the center of town. This ripping down of statue wasn't simply an act of rebellion, nor was it even an act of anger against Saddam, although those were undoubtedly part of the motive. Their act of destruction said something very poignant. It said, this man no longer rules us. This country no longer belongs to this dictator. We are removing his image from the land. Statues in the ancient and not-so-ancient Near East act as a symbol of who is in charge, a symbol of who the land belongs to. So when I say, do you think of humanity as being statues, this isn't just me being crazy. For when we read the words of the creation account of mankind in Genesis, we hear that male and female we're created in the image and likeness of God. And the early readers of Genesis 1 would have known that humanity was placed on earth as a visual and outward reminder that the earth is the Lord's. Humanity, male and female, are visual reminders, statues, as it were, in the center of town, that the earth belongs to God. This basic fact may help us worship God better and love even our enemies. How would you, your perspective change if when you saw your best friend, and re you recalled the creative power of the Lord? Or what about when you saw your spouse or your child or your annoying coworker or neighbor or someone who had hurt you deeply who hates, or who hates you? How does recognizing that God created the person sitting next to you in his image change how you might approach them? But then returning to creation, something terrible happened. Perhaps it was an hour or ten years after that creative act of creating man and woman in the image of God. It does not matter. But the first statues, the first people, 
did what they were forbidden to do. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and rebelled against God. They rejected their ruler. They rejected the one whom they were created in the image of. And in this act, the image was not lost, but became horribly tarnished. Sin entered the world, and its horrible grime covered and marred the image of God in mankind. And immediately, God the Creator enacted His plan for the restoration of those image bearers. He enacted His plan for our restoration, His plan for our salvation and the salvation of humanity. And first came the law. Moses went up into the mountain. And he was given the law from God. There he communed with God, and God spelled out what he expected from his chosen people. God spelled out the pathway of restoration. But even this pathway did not free them from sin, did not free them from the dreadful tarnishing that entered the fir- with the first image bearer's rebellion. But then God took another image, took, then another took on the image took on the image, became the perfect image of God. And he too went into the mountain, but he did not commune with God on that mountain, but rather he was God. He, had, he taught as one with authority. He taught as one who had the right to say what he said. And this teaching is where we pick up this morning. In this story, of Christ and the story of our salvation. When Christ goes up into the mountain, he teaches and teaches what we know as the Sermon of the Mount. St. Matthew uses the exact same phrase as the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible uses to describe Moses' ascent up Mount Sinai. In doing so, he inextricably links the, this moment with the moment of Moses' life marking the difference between Christ that he does not receive, nor does he receive from God the new ethic and the new covenant. For Christ was God incarnate, and so he taught in his own authority. And now the Beatitudes, as as they are commonly called, are the gateway into Christ's teaching, the disposition that we are called to have as Christians the disposition of our heart when Christ takes them and molds them and restores them. In this molding and restoration, we are beginning to see the restoration of the image of God. We see God sanctifying us and renewing that image that we lost by sin. Christ and Christ declares, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be blessed? In our Christianized world and circles, we have exhausted the word blessed, for we speak of it when we get a fancy new car. We speak of it as, a, as friendships, possessions, and other things. We say, Father, your sermon was a real blessing to me when the ser- we like the sermon. And, something, and sometimes those more tech-savvy folks use the hashtag blessed when they are pleased with how things have gone. This is not necessarily a bad thing, for our lives are rich when we see the hand of God working in them. But I wonder if we know what it means here 
Some translations prefer happy. But when we get to blessed are those who mourn, we might, it, we might, make, it, might make it seem as though Christ is not declaring something good and beautiful, but rather that he is being insensitive. For how could he say, happy are those who mourn? We might think, what cruel language that is. A modern paraphrase prefers in luck. And this is an interesting take and not actually as far-fetched as you may think that it is. When we understand the translation, translator's rationale, if Christ is who he says he is, if Christ is God, then the poor and the mourning and the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, then and only then are they in luck. But if he is not, then how unfortunate are we? How unlucky are we? For our hope and future rests in Christ being who he says he is. And he is who he says he is. But still, as I've contemplated these phrases this past week, I find myself coming back to that word happy. There's something about happy that is so simple and so attractive. Happy, if we have a right definition of it. Happy, as with the fulfillment of our eternal hope. Happy, as finally fully having communion with God. Happy, as I heard it defined this past week as the emotion that we feel when we see a friend from afar and know that we will soon be with him. We know that feeling, don't we? Our heart jumps a little bit. We have become joy-filled. We think, at long last, my friend is here. I see him over there and we will hug soon. We will laugh. We will talk of our joys and sorrows. We will bear each other's burdens and delight in each other's joys. Though it is weary, my soul can rest now. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are we, for we know Christ is restoring his image in us. But now we take note. These nine sayings take on attention of already, but not yet. They take on a note of end times promises that we are to rejoice even though they are not yet fulfilled. Notice that tension as we read through the Beatitudes tied together by the word shall. When we see this here, we should think already, but not yet. Already the poor are happy, but not yet fulfilled completely. Already you are restored in Christ, but not yet fully. Some have hypothesized that we should read this first saying, Blessed in the Spirit are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This would not change our understanding of who the poor are, but those who are the proponents of it say that it clarifies that it is God who will do the blessing. It is because of God's incarnation that we are in luck. It is because God working in Christ that we are called to let our hearts skip with joy. It is God who makes the weary heart happy. God makes his people happy. 
God is the one doing the work. And I think as long as we know where our blessings, our joy, our happiness, our fortunes come from, they come from God. Reading it as blessed are the poor in spirit is a perfectly fine way to read it. But what does it mean to be poor? There's a difference between not having much and having nothing at all. Not having much, you may have a car, but it may be crummy. You may have, may have to eat beans and rice every day, but you have food. You may have cheap clothes with holes in them, but you get by. But this is not what it means to be poor here. To be poor in this context means to be destitute, to have nothing at all. Plutarch, a secular author who lived half a century or so after Jesus walked on the earth, wrote, For the life of a beggar that you describe means the existence with nothing. But that of the poor means sparse living and sticking to the job. This distinction should help us to grasp the difference between being poor and being destitute. And without Christ, we are beggars with nothing. I suspect that most of us, if not all of us, have experienced some form of being poor, wondering how we'll pay our bills or get food to eat that coming week. But few of us have ever been destitute, have ever had nothing at all. And with this in mind, I think that we get a hint at the first reason, one of the reasons why some people have such a struggle in coming to Christ. For to come to Christ means to give up your right to everything. It means to become destitute for the sake of Christ. To come to Christ, God must become the sovereign of your life. God asks you to give him all. All your sin, all your virtue, all your shame, and all your joys. Everything that makes you, you, he asks for. And then he make, to make him your king. To make him your all, but to come to God to inherit the kingdom of heaven, first we become destitute. We must, like Christ, empty ourselves. We must empty ourselves of our earthbound glory so that we may experience his heavenly glory. Happy are the destitute, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I spent a fair amount of time breaking down the first beatitude because each will follow a similar format. We have, already, we have started with the already not yet, of the statement of the blessed, happy, the in luck, and then the promise of the fulfillment of what that status looks like. The next fortunate group is those who mourn. I cannot imagine that anyone makes it through this life without a significant number of tears, a significant number of pain. We have all experienced lo loss of ones we love. We've all experienced heartache. We've all experienced so much pain and mourn so deeply. Perhaps my favorite modern musician is Andrew Peterson, and he summarizes this guarantee of woundedness up in a ballad which he sings to for his son. He writes, Your first kiss, your first crush, the first time that you know you are not enough, the first time that there's no one there to hold to. 
I know few over the age of 20 who have not experienced these things and the hurt that comes with them. For sin entered into the world and tarnishes the image which we were created in, mutilated the goodness that we were meant to enjoy. And so we mourn, mourn for our brokenness, mourn for our wounds, mourn for what has been lost. But in Christ, we are fortunate. We are happy for he is our comfort. I personally have dealt with anxiety habitually throughout my life. I don't shout this from the rooftop, but it's not particularly secret as well. It can be painful at times, but one place I've found an incredible amount of comfort is the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord's rod and staff, they comfort me. What a good guide he is. Exhorting me to repentance, guiding me away from pitfalls, holding me close in my fear and pain. When I rest in him, the anxiety diminishes at least some. My friends, in this sinful world, you will mourn. You will not get away from it. Do not numb your pain with cheap entertainment, with shallow promises, with sinful pleasures, but lean all the more into Christ. Because happy are you when you mourn, because you have a Savior that loves you, who wants to hold you, who will comfort you, who will be a balm for your pain. Christ is restoring you in his image. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are the next to receive hope, and we are called not to trust in ourselves. We have seen habitually throughout the history of salvation and of mankind. In Babel, they tried to build a tower to get to God. Moses struck a rock. In our modern times and the triumph of the human spirit, it has led to two world wars, to genocide, and to at least 50 million abortions since Roe versus Wade. We slaughter each other because we want to prove our strength. But happy are those who are meek. Happy are the humble. Happy are those who do not find their strength in themselves. For when the culmination of all things come, then the earth shall be theirs and the image of God shall be restored in them to perfection. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We live in a time and a country, a place that puts a high value on justice, and here justice and righteousness can be, interchange, be used interchangeably. I think that they mean, but they do in fact mean, different things. Yet, if we are remotely astute, we know that there are those who will be denied justice, even in our own country. This does not mean that we should be satisfied with a meager justice, but to cry out to God, how long, O Lord, how long until you supply us with the perfect justice that you have promised us. And like our longing for justice, until Christ comes, we will struggle with sin. 
We will struggle to be righteous. And we will pray with St. Paul, why do I do the things that I know that I ought not do? Well, I do the things that I don't do the things that I know that I ought to do. We will know this struggle. But in our desire to glorify Christ, our entire being will long, will hunger and thirst that God's righteousness be returned to us. And and we will long for justice to be poured out when we feel crippled by the world. But be happy. We count ourselves fortunate, for we know that the promise of, of the end, God will pour out his justice, and God will restore in us a heart for his righteousness. God is restoring us, and we will be restored in his image. And in the last day, We will be satisfied for eternity. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As Christians, we are called to be merciful, called to forgive, called to make our enemy list our prayer list. This is a hard task. And yet God is merciful to us and poured out upon us a deep mercy. And out of that, we can desire nothing less than to pour out mercy for others. Happy are we when we are merciful, because we will know the incredible mercy of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The irony is rich here, for as Christ preaches, God incarnate is opening his mouth and asking hearers, do you know who I am? Or are your hearts so corrupt and so tainted that you cannot see me. For us, we pray that God would continue to restore his image in us, restore in us a purity of heart. We pray that he would restore in us the desire to see him in everything. And for me, this goes back to that 23rd Psalm, to restore in his good, to rest in his good and guiding hand, to purify my heart, to help me see his hand in all things. So when I die, that I may behold that beatific vision, that I may see him face to face and feel his warm embrace. My friends, do not be dismayed if you feel as though your heart is too dark. Do not, do not for it is not you who purifies your heart, but the Holy Spirit. So let him purify you. Let him restore in you a new heart, a pure heart, a clean heart, so that we may gaze upon Christ. Happy are the pure in heart, because they will experience God now and will know God as their Father in eternity. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. One of the attractions of Anglicanism is its peaceable coexistence with other Christians. We seek to be one with many and to break bread with all our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is good. It is our Christian call to restore harmony between enemies, though this can be a difficult task. But we seek that road, seek to show those who are disturbed, angry, and lost the true peace that is found in Christ. Happy are the peacemakers, for they have been adopted 
by God. The last two promises for us, though, do not depict that peaceful life. If we seek these things, if we are poor, meek, mournful, longing for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, longing for peace, we will face turmoil. The world will mock us and scorn us. We long so much for a worldly reward that we find ourselves lost. Christ promises that we will face adversity in the here and now. And if we follow after him, but adversity will sanctify us, usher us into that kingdom of heaven. We will behold the face of God and our eternal reward shall be great. The cost of restoration, the cost of being sanctified, the cost of Christ wiping away the mire and dirt from of sin from out his image in us is turmoil now, but the reward is joy in eternity. Happy are we when we face persecution. This Sunday is Septuagesima Sunday, which is not simply a word we made up to tongue-tie people, but rather it means that we now are 70 days away from Easter and celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. But we come upon the season of preparing our hearts as Lent comes. Lent is a season of praying that God would open our hearts to recognize the places we need restoration, the places where we need to repent, the places where we need to depend upon him all the more. As we draw near to Lent, I would like to challenge you all to pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal in your heart your own brokenness, that you may delve deeper into the restoration that Christ has promised us. In your bulletin, as you probably noticed, I included a little half sheet, and I would like to challenge all of you to pray through the following. You can pick one or two of them to pray each day, or you can go through each one each day and ask God about it. I realize this can be a scary task, but I think the fruit of it will be great and worthwhile, will help you to draw near to God in Lent. So as it comes upon us, ask ourselves, are you destitute outside of Christ? Is he your all and your everything? Or are there things that you cling to for your own salvation? When you mourn, is your comfort found in Christ? Are there, or are there other things that you use to numb the pain? Television, gossip, alcohol, food, or all too often in our culture, pornography? Are you meek and humble? Are you, or are you trusting in your own strength to save yourself? Do you long for God's righteousness and justice? Or do you dismiss it and trust in your own righteousness? Are you willing to be merciful to all people? Or do you hold grudges and let bitterness persist in your heart? Is your heart pure? Or do you chase after sin and strife and after false promises of the world? Do you long for peace and strive to bring peace to those around you? Or does the turmoil and strife of your heart rule you? Do you stir up dissension in your world? Do you rejoice in persecution? Or do you see it as a chance to grumble and to be indignant? I hope that you would join me 
in praying through these questions. And I know they are hard. But I hope that in this we will all find that deep and unending joy that Christ promises us today. That in this you see how Christ takes our spiritual poverty and makes us inextricably rich. That you may see Christ's hand of mercy restoring you in the image of God. In a writing from the first or second century of the church, summarizes the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount as the following. If you can, bear all the yoke of the Lord, and you shall be perfect. But if you cannot, do what you can. My dear friends, do what you can, and let the Holy Spirit work richly in your heart. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.